In the story of Pedro Hernandez, Manny had cast himself as the hero and Detective David Terrell as the villain. After months of trying to get in touch with Terrell, I'd finally gotten to talk to him. And as you heard in the last episode, he seemed to see those roles as reversed. He was the hero, and Manny was the villain. He'd filed a lawsuit in which he denied having any personal involvement with Pedro, and he claimed that all the allegations people had been making against him were lies, and that Manny had been conspiring with gang members to make them up. But there seemed to be a problem with that narrative. People began complaining about Terrell long before Manny entered the picture. Okay, great. Um, so he has a big, long record of complaints. Yeah. Look, These are all different over. pages? Yeah. All right, so. I spoke with Richard Emery, the former head of something called the Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB, a city agency that investigates complaints of police misconduct. They keep a record of complaints against each officer on something known as the officer's CCRB index. A lot of cops have one. I got a copy of Terrell's and showed it to Emery. I don't remember seeing many officers with that many complaints. Very few officers. I'd be surprised if he wasn't on the top of the list Mm -hmm. of the number of complaints. To have that many complaints, I don't think there's probably another officer in the force that has that many complaints against them. Really? Yeah. Uh, That's a huge number of complaints. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, that's a huge number of complaints. People have filed 35 complaints about Terrell, stretching back to the beginning of his career. Most of them were filed before Manny ever started looking into Pedro's case. To put those numbers in perspective, most NYPD officers received one or two complaints in their whole career. Terrell's 35 almost put him in a class of his own. According to the CCRB, there were only two cops on the force of 36,000 officers with more complaints than Terrell. In other words, Terrell was the number three most complained about cop in all of New York. These CCRB files are typically private, but Terrell gave us access to his. And he dismisses the complaints in his file in the same way that he dismisses all the allegations against him. He points out that most of these complaints were never proven true. And he claims they were mostly made by bad people who were trying to get him in trouble so that he'd stop going after them. He's hardly the only cop to have made a claim like that. There's a widespread belief in the NYPD that gang members use the CCRB to foil good police officers. Some cops even take pride in racking up CCRB complaints. They'll tell you that if you don't have a bunch of CCRBs, it means you aren't working hard enough. But not everyone in the department feels that way. I sat down with Corey Pegues, a retired captain who spent 21 years in the NYPD and has recently become a public critic of the department. I showed him Terrell's record. <laughs> this is crazy. These All of these pages are his? They're double-sided as well, actually. You gotta be kidding me. How many is three pages here? This is crazy. So this is my page. Two complaints in 21 years. That's what you had? Yeah. Nothing, nothing crazy like this. This is crazy. And what's crazy about it? Just the number or more? The number this? one is is crazy. And so what happens is when you have somebody with a high index of CCRBs, and I'm talking, I will be sitting somebody down after three CCRBs. After three. I would be embarrassed to suggest to the chief, like, this is a guy who I want to make a detective. Why? Because I got all of these complaints. So let's just say, 
95% of them are untrue. Right. 5% of them are still true. It's like, what are you doing out there? What was Terrell doing out there? So far, I'd heard two competing stories from two rival detectives, Manny and Terrell. If I wanted to get any closer to the truth, I'd have to do a little detective work of my own. From Gimlet Media, I'm Saki Kanafo. This is Conviction. One of the first things I did when looking into Terrell's background was to search for lawsuits that had been filed against him. And I found at least 20 people who'd sued him over the course of his career. They'd sued him for brutality. They'd sued him for searching their homes without a warrant. They'd sued him for locking them up and claiming that they'd committed vague offenses like disorderly conduct when they said they hadn't committed any crime at all. Like the CCRB complaints, most of the lawsuits were filed by people who had nothing to do with Manny. In one of them, a 15-year-old girl accused Terrell of punching her in the face after she gave him some attitude. Through his lawyer, Terrell claimed that she was about to assault someone, and so he had to resort to physical force. The city reached a settlement with the girl, awarding her 45 grand. I reached out to all the people who'd sued, or their lawyers. In some cases, Terrell was just one of several cops they named in their lawsuits. Some of their lawsuits had been dismissed. Other people had gotten settlements from the city. Many of the people we reached out to didn't want to talk on the record. But there was one woman, Schwan Reed, who sat down with us for hours. She told us a story not just about Terrell, but about a bunch of other cops who worked with him. And the way she told it, her experience with Terrell revealed a much bigger problem at the 42nd Precinct. You know when you're over something, when you're able to talk about it and not get emotional. <laughs> so you have to excuse me for that because I still, you know, it still bothers me a lot. Schwan's story begins one afternoon about seven years ago with a confrontation between her son and the cops. Not Terrell. He wouldn't enter the story until later, but some other officers from the 42nd Precinct. Those officers were driving around in a van when they spotted her 19-year-old son, Jatik, walking up a stoop with some friends. Later, they would claim that he was holding some bags of weed and crack out in, quote, plain view. And so they tried to arrest him, and when they did, they say he resisted, punching an officer in the face. They eventually got handcuffs on him and hauled him off to jail. So that's their account, the official version. But after the arrest, footage from a nearby security camera surfaced, and it captured a very disturbing scene that the cops had completely omitted from their stories. In the video, you don't see Jatik holding any drugs. It doesn't look like the officers have any reason to search him, but they search him anyway, rifling through his pockets in his backpack. This goes on for two minutes, and then Jatik suddenly lurches away from the officers. From the video, it's hard to make out why, but you can clearly see what happens next. One of the officers grabs Jatik and slams him to the ground, and then two other cops run over and grab him. As Jatik flails his arms and legs, the cops pummel him with their fists and their batons. At this point, one of his friends begins recording on his cell phone. In the cell phone video, you can hear the officers, four of them by this point, 
kicking Jatik and swinging down on him with their clubs. And you can see one of the cops walk up to the guy taking the video and fire a can of pepper spray at him. After about a minute, the officers stop. They back away. You see Jatik on the sidewalk in handcuffs, just lying there, flat on his stomach, his face pressed down into the pavement. A cop grabs the handcuffs by the chain and drags Jatik down the street. He leaves Jatik lying on the sidewalk next to the van. While he's lying there, more cops arrive. One of them walks up to him, raises her boot, and kicks him square in the back. After Jatik was arrested, he was charged with possession of marijuana, assaulting an officer, harassment, and menacing. For assaulting an officer, that one charge alone, he could have faced seven years in prison. I think all the time about how if it was no video and it was his word against the police, my son might still be in jail to this day for something that he didn't do, you know? Shuan, Jatik's mom, was at home in her apartment when she first got word that Jatik had been beaten. I remember um, getting a phone call from his godmother. She was upset, and I couldn't really understand what she was saying at first. And um, she's crying. She's hysterical. They beat him, and they put him in the car. They were hitting him. He was bleeding. His stuff is all on the street, you know, his jacket and whatever was in his pockets. Everything was laying on the streets. She was telling me that somebody picked it up, you know, gave it to her. And um, one of his friends taped part of the incident. So um, I never forget. Um, it's funny now, but I had my I was taking my hair out because I had my hair done, and I t- just took my hair out. So my hair was looking crazy. I didn't have a chance to do my hair or nothing. Um, but I heavy up and I got dressed and I just threw on a baseball cap. And my phone was barely charged, and I got Jair dressed quickly, and I was out the door. Jair is one of her sons. He was four at the time. She grabbed him and rushed over to the 42nd Precinct, where she was joined by one of her other sons, Jay Sean, who was 17, and one of his friends. She says she went up to the front desk and asked to speak to the captain, but the cop at the desk kept telling her that the captain wasn't available. After a few tries, she said she could tell she wasn't getting anywhere with him, so she turned to leave. And as she did, she told him that ignoring her wouldn't make the problem go away. She told him the whole thing was caught on video. And it's at this point, Schwann says, that David Terrell enters the story. Schwann says she walked out of the precinct through a metal gate. As she and her sons were on the sidewalk outside the precinct, she says Terrell and several other officers came out after them. And one of the other officers confronted Schwan's son, Jay Sean. One of the officers, um, he said to my son, Jay Sean, um, did you slam that fucking gate? And I turned around and I gestured to Jay Sean like this. Put your finger on your yes, mouth. Like yeah. I gestured to him, don't say anything, because I've always taught them, if there's an issue, I speak to grown-ups, not you, and you're never disrespectful. So I gestured for him to be quiet, and I turned to the officer, and I said to him, I said, no, he didn't slam the fucking gate. I repeated what he said. I said, he's a child, and a minor, I'm his mother. If you have something to say, you can say it to me. So um, then he said to me, well, who the fuck you think you talking to? And I said, well, I repeated to him, well, who the fuck you think you talking to? I said, I'm grown, just like you're grown, If you want respect, you give it. And I said, and I'm probably older than you. 
You know, at the same time, I'm angry, but you're not going to speak to me in a demeaning manner. I'm grown. Do you speak to me how you want to be spoken to? And then um, I can't recall exactly what he said to me. I'm not going to lie. And my son says, um, why are you talking to my mother like that? So Dave Terrell pushed him. And Jay Sean says, I want to press charges. He just put his hands on me. So I said, get your brother. Let's go. Schwann wanted to leave before things got even worse. So he went to grab um, Jair's hand. His little brother, who was how old at the time? Four at the time. So when he went to grab his brother, Dave Terrell grabs him. Grabs who? Jay Sean. And, son. Yes, mm-hmm. and throws him on the floor. And he's literally with his foot stepping on his head like this. Terrell is stepping on his head. Yes. So when I go, I said, you know, like, um, I can't recall exactly what I said, but I'm like, what are you doing? And I go over, like, go over to him, and he turns around, and I remember him snatching me and, like, throwing me to the side. And in front of the precinct, they have two steps. I hit my knee on the piece on the end. She says that her pants ripped and that to this day, her knee still hurts when she bends it. At this point, the police arrested Schwan and the older boys. And she says they brought them back into the precinct. Schwan's day had started with the news that one of her sons had been beaten up by the cops. And when she and her other son tried to help him, the cops had beaten them up too. And now here they all were, Schwan and both of her teenage sons, locked up at the precinct while the cops kept her four-year-old in an office out of sight. That was hard, um being in the precinct that day because it was my whole family. <laughs> I laugh, um, um, that's a defense mechanism I have to laugh and cry at the same time because um, it was me and all three of my sons in there. And at the time, nobody even <laughs> knew we were there. I just was sitting in the cell and I was looking like, oh my God, I can't even protect them. Look at him and look at him, look what they did to him and it's nothing I can do. She says she turned to her 17-year-old son, Jay Sean, who was in the cell next to hers, and she gave him some advice, using a phrase I'd heard before. And I remember telling Jay Sean, don't say nothing because you don't have no wins, and, and it's all of them, so it doesn't matter what you say. Like, it's, it's, you have no wins. If you're being verbal with them and they beat the hell out of you, there's nothing you can do. Like, it, you have no way to really defend yourself, you know, and who's going to help you? Or who, when you go through the system and they say you did ABC, who they're going to believe? Schwan expected the cops to lie about what happened that day. And according to her, they did. Terrell and the other cops provided their accounts of what happened in their official reports. And those accounts were different from Schwan's in a subtle but important way. In Schwan's telling, the cops came after her and her sons after they'd already walked out of the precinct and confronted them and eventually arrested them for no reason. But in the cops' version, Schwan and the boys refused to leave the precinct, which gave the cops a justification to arrest them and to use physical force. Based on the police accounts, prosecutors filed formal charges against Schwan and the older boys. Trespassing, obstructing justice, resisting arrest, disorderly conduct. Over the next three years, Schwan and her family had to go to court again and again to contest their charges, while the prosecutors tried to get them to plead guilty, tried to get them into that Porsche. But Schwan's case was different from most cases. 
although she had no video to back up her claim about what happened to her and Jay Sean at the precinct. There were those videos of Jatik getting beaten by the cops in the street. Those videos got a lot of media attention, and a team of high-profile lawyers signed on to represent Schwann's entire family pro bono. Because of all that, the lawyers, the video, Schwann says things went differently than they might have otherwise. Although her son Jay Sean and his friend pled guilty to disorderly conduct, Schwann and her son Jatik held out against the pressure to take a deal, and the charges against them were ultimately dismissed. After those charges were dropped, Schwann's family sued the cops in the city for what happened to them. Recently, the city settled, paying them more than $600,000. Terrell disputes Schwann's version of events, and in his lawsuit, he says he had no, quote, personal contact with Schwann. Schwann used her share of the settlement money to get out of the Bronx. She lives in a small town now, in a modest house with a yard, and she loves it. Loves the peace and quiet. Loves the school where her youngest son is now in fifth grade. But even so, Schwann doesn't feel like they won. Two of the cops accused of beating Jatik had to pay some money towards the settlement. Some of the others were put on desk duty, but none of them lost their jobs. Terrell says he was investigated by the NYPD and was found to have violated no department policies. A few years after the incident, he was promoted to detective. For them to get what I feel like is just a slap on the wrist, oh, you have death duty, and what is what, what is that? So they kind of, in a way, letting these cops know they are above the law. And that's what people are having a problem with, because they're doing stuff and they're not being held accountable. In other words, they're getting away with it, basically. They should be held at the same standards as we are when you break the law and you're held in contempt and you're lying under oath and all that. But you're supposed to be the person that we look to to tell the truth and be honest and upright and, you know, save us. In a lot of the lawsuits against Terrell, a civilian accused him of something and he denied it. And there's no definitive proof either way. But the allegations against Terrell didn't just come from civilians who'd sued him. Other people had accused him of bad behavior too, including the NYPD itself. That's coming up after the break. One of the allegations that Pedro's mom, Jessica, made about Terrell was that Terrell had sexually harassed her. As I looked into Terrell's past, I found that she wasn't the only one. Last year, someone leaked about 2,000 NYPD disciplinary records to BuzzFeed. Searching through them, I found that Terrell had been investigated by the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau in 2011 for sexual harassment of a minor. Looking into it further, I found that he was charged with placing his arm around someone under the age of 18 and saying, quote, you're too pretty to be getting into trouble, and I want to give you a kiss. He was found guilty of sexual harassment by the department. He also pled guilty to telling a minor on another occasion, if you were a little older, I'd marry you. Terrell was disciplined. He had vacation days taken away, but he was allowed to keep his job. Then there was a story I heard from a lawyer named Walter Fields. Fields represents juvenile defendants in the Bronx. Back in 2013, he represented one of several kids who'd been charged with an assault. The kids all said they were innocent, but the prosecutor claimed to have a very credible witness, someone who had testified that these kids had committed the crime, 
a police officer. This police officer mm. took the stand and was totally incredible. He did not tell the truth besides saying his name. And what was his name? His name was Officer Terrell. Because this was a juvenile case, the records were sealed, so we couldn't get the transcripts. But when I spoke to Fields, he said there was one piece of testimony in particular that he still remembers vividly. After Terrell testified that these kids were guilty, one of the kids' lawyers stood up to cross-examine him, and that lawyer asked Terrell an unexpected question. Do you have a relationship with, with young man X's mother? Terrell was being asked if he'd ever dated the mother of the kid he just testified against. If it turned out that he had, it would have raised a lot of questions. Like, was he using his power over these kids to get involved with their moms? And he said no. According to Fields, Terrell denied on the stand that he'd ever been in a relationship with this kid's mother. At which point, the kid's lawyer presented some text messages Terrell apparently sent the mom. There were text and written material presented that he would text back and forth having pet names for her. You know, things that show true that someone would text back and forth showing some sort of an affection, or someone would text if there was an intimate relationship. According to Fields, the kid's lawyer asked Terrell if he'd sent those texts, and Terrell admitted that he did. And the case fell apart after that. All of these four young men were found not guilty. You know why? Because he was totally incredible and because he lied and because the judge found that he didn't see what he said he saw and that he didn't know what he said he knew. He could have simply took the stand and said, yes, I was dating child X's mother, but he didn't do that. He lied about it. Field says he still thinks about this case years later. This case stuck with me and my two partners weren't in the courtroom when this happened. And after this, they'll tell you, uh, I was shaken to my core. Like Your partner's sitting right here. Can you remember his reaction? He was very upset by it. And he was just outraged and couldn't believe that this officer of the law would have the nerve to think that he could just run roughshod over the truth to the peril of the lives of these young people. By the police department's own standards, Lying is one of the worst things an officer can do. There's a reason for this. In countless cases, like the one you just heard about, cops testify as witnesses, and a cop's word carries a lot of weight. So if a cop lies, it can mean someone spending years in prison for a crime they didn't do. And that's one of the reasons the police department's rulebook explicitly states that cops who lie will face the department's harshest penalty. Barring, quote, exceptional circumstances, they will be fired. By now I'd found that Terrell had been accused of lying in a couple different instances. Schwann had accused him of lying on an arrest report. And the lawyer, Walter Fields, claimed he had lied in court. It's possible the police department didn't know about those things. But there was this one other instance that the police department definitely knew about. Because the CCRB told them about it. The CCRB, again is that agency that investigates civilian complaints against the police. Richard Emery is the former head of the agency. For almost two years, I was chair of the the Civilian Complaint Review Board and did literally hundreds of cases, reviewed hundreds of cases of complaints against police, many of which involved lying. The CCRB, when we found false statements, we didn't do it lightly. That was that was either some document that was contradicted, that was video that was contradicted, Emery told me that when cops were brought into his agency to answer questions, they often lied. 
but the CCRB wouldn't say that in the official report unless they had hard evidence. It was often testimony from the police officers um, where the police officer would say one thing, they'd be confronted with a video which made it very clear that the situation was the opposite of what they said. So that that's how clear and uh, and and absolutely unequivocal the lying was, the false statements were. When that happened, when the CCRB found what they felt was clear, unequivocal proof of an officer lying, the CCRB would add three words to the complaint, false official statement. Looking through Terrell's CCRB record, next to an entry on the fifth page, I saw those three words, false official statement. When we spoke with the CCRB, they said Terrell had been accused of searching someone's home without showing the person a warrant. Terrell told the CCRB that he did show the person a warrant, and that the person clearly read it and even asked questions about it. But two other cops who were there told the CCRB that never happened. And to cap it all off, the CCRB learned that the guy whose home had been searched would have had a pretty hard time reading the warrant. According to the CCRB, he was legally blind. By the department's own standards, it seems that Terrell should have been fired. But over the last eight years, the CCRB found at least 81 cases where cops clearly lied to them. All 81 of those cops, barring exceptional circumstances, should have lost their jobs. But as far as the CCRB knows, only two of them did. I spoke to Richard Emery about it. I viewed it as a major lapse of the police department not to be disciplining the false statements cases that we sent over, and I thought it was indicative of their unwillingness to deal with police lying. Why do you think they were so unwilling to deal with it? Because, partially because the penalty is draconian in the police guide. Firing people is a pretty extreme measure. And secondly, because I'm afraid that there is too much tolerance of police lying generally in the police department. Maybe that explains what happened with Terrell. Even after the CCRB found hard evidence that he'd lied, the department didn't fire him. He remained on the streets, making arrests, locking people up. I needed to talk to Terrell about the allegation that he'd lied to the CCRB. Could he tell me more about what happened there? Were there exceptional circumstances? And if so, what were they? I also wanted to ask him about all the other claims made against him by all the other people I'd talked to. So the next time I sat down with him and his attorney, Eric Sanders, I began going through the claims, starting with a story that Pedro's mom, Jessica, had told. All right. She told us a few things, and I want to give you a chance to respond. So she said um, that you started calling her repeatedly and uh, would go to her building and like the message that she was getting was that you were hitting on her, and if she kept rejecting you, you'd, you'd go after her son. Did she say that? This is Terrell's lawyer again, Eric Sanders. Did she tell you that Terrell was doing that? Yeah. It's been addressed in a lawsuit. He absolutely wasn't doing that. Definitely not. It was already responded to, and I already told you I'm not going over the same thing in a lawsuit. It's in there. All right, so there was something that you didn't address in the lawsuit that I want to ask about. Um, Several people um, I spoke to told me about a court case in 2013. It was a gang assault case, and you were asked about having a relationship with the mother of one of the defendants. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely not. Why not? Listen to me. I'm going to tell you this one time. 
He's not here to answer anything about wild allegations made against him from out of nowhere. That's not documented anywhere. There's no one ever made a complaint about. He's not here for that. Some of it is documented. There was a document that was leaked by BuzzFeed. Where so, is it? Where's the document? Where's the document? I want to see it. I have it right here. Okay, I want to see it. Instead of asking a question about short term. Okay. I know what this is. What is it? When I got charges for the rape victim. And I'm not going to talk about her personal um, stuff because she was a rape victim. I'm not exactly sure what Terrell meant when he said this about the rape victim. It seemed like he was saying that the underage person the department found him guilty of harassing was a rape victim. Maybe someone whose case he was handling. And he couldn't tell us more about what happened there because he wanted to protect her privacy. I wanted to ask him more about it, but I couldn't because of what happened next. He's not, like, again, like I said, you specifically talk about the Pedro Hernandez. This has nothing to do with Pedro Hernandez or his lawsuit. And, and by the way, came out. listen to me, don't cut me off. I'm, you're going to get one more time to say this. And after that, if it's done again, I'm going to cut it. I don't care about your article. I don't care about your readership. I'm not here to make value judgment about why people have a relationship. They don't have a personal relationship. I don't care. And the public shouldn't care either. All right, let me just make sure that I'm clear. I just want to understand what's going on. And if people have a misperception about you, then I want to understand that. People don't know about this and they don't care. The public doesn't care. All they care about is Pedro Hernandez. That's what they relate him to. Nothing else. I think that that it is relevant, but you're saying it's not. But 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 Listen but to me. but I tell you what I'm going to do. I don't have to be here for this. You know what? It's over. See, see, there that's how I saw it. Against him, and of course no, no. I looked this at him. This is not an allegation against him. Okay, this is the first time I'm seeing it and hearing about it because you know what? It's not I'm made. Not upset. You do, Saki. You like listen to me, or sometimes feel like I'm a fucking idiot. I don't care what BuzzFeed put on their website. First of all, BuzzFeed is a fucking blog shit, all right? That's the first thing. Not one major, major media company talked about this. You know why? Because they know that this was a leak. And you know what? Guess what? Interview's over. I don't care what you do. He's not here to fight in the paper. And I don't play that game. Have a nice day. Sorry. Sorry, guys. All right. You're walking out. I mean, nothing I can do, brother. It's my attorney. What am I going to do? Why do you say sorry? Do you want to talk? No, I'm saying sorry for the way this, this thing right. turned out. So I can, you're you know? doing something else unethical. You don't have a client, right? You All should right. be talking to him. Have All a right. nice day. All right. Bye. I wouldn't have another chance to talk to Terrell on the record, but Terrell's lawyer, Eric Sanders, would eventually respond to questions from a fact checker about the case where Terrell was found guilty for sexually harassing a minor, Sanders said it was false and laughable and that Terrell would be suing the city over it. And about the case where Terrell allegedly gave a false statement to the CCRB, Sanders said the CCRB investigation was biased. He also said that when the police department investigated it, they cleared him. When I brought all this up with a spokesperson for the NYPD, he said he couldn't comment on Terrell directly because of the ongoing litigation. 
and so he wouldn't explain why the department didn't fire Terrell, even though the CCRB said he gave a false statement. And he couldn't explain why they promoted Terrell, in spite of all the complaints that people have filed against him. What he did say was that the department is changing. He said they're moving away from evaluating officers and their arrest numbers. And he pointed out that the police commissioner recently assembled an independent panel to review the department's disciplinary practices. Now that might sound like boilerplate, but it is significant. The department is finally acknowledging a concern that a lot of people, including cops, have been raising for years. These critics have been saying that the department's disciplinary system is unfair, that the department punishes cops who don't make enough arrests, who aren't aggressive enough, and that when cops are aggressive and competitive, when they bring in big arrest numbers, the department lets them get away with bad behavior. But there are exceptions. Back in the late 90s, there was an aggressive young cop who wanted to rise through the ranks and become a detective, just like Terrell. And like a lot of aggressive cops, he was accused of crossing some lines. But in his case, the department didn't let him slide. Instead, the department went after him. That cop's name? Manny Gomez. Coming up in the next episode, Manny's life before becoming a P.I. Conviction is a production of Gimlet Media. It's hosted by me, Saki Kanafo, and produced by Meg Driscoll, Chris Neary, and Saeed Tichin Thomas. Our editors are Alex Bloomberg, Jorge Just, Lynn Levy, and Jessica Weisberg. Mixing by Sam Baer and Haley Shaw. Music by Haley Shaw. Our credits music is Hard Times by Curtis Mayfield, performed by Baby Huey. This series was developed with help from producer Kate Osborne, and it grew out of a collaboration with the New York Times Magazine. Special thanks to my editor there, Mike Benoit. The series was also made in partnership with Type Investigations. Special thanks to Esther Kaplan and fact-checker Evan Malmgren. Thanks also to Sharina Ong and Devin Taylor. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm sick and tired of paying dues, baby. And I'm sick and tired of having so many hearts.